0: This postseason has not gone the way Atlanta sports fans had hoped, and I blame Morgan Wallen. You have to go make a song about the 98 Braves, and the Braves this season go on to do the biggest choke job since the 98 Braves. So, thanks a lot Morgan, this one's on you. It's actually crazy when you look at it, that's not incorrect. You could argue this is a bigger choke job than the 98 Braves, Because at least the 98 Braves made the second round. So the 98 Braves have the franchise record for wins with 106. This year's Braves teams are tied for second with 104 wins. So what's the bigger choke job? You tell me, but I'd have to go with the 2023 Braves. And fun fact, the team that's tied with this season's Braves for second place was the 93 Braves, who also lost and choked away a World Series so if you're noticing a pattern here you are not misinformed the Braves have a long history of choking in the postseason with which this is just the latest installment but to show you how bad it is I'll run down some stats but first off the Braves lost to the Phillies in a three to one series split the first Series in the MLB playoffs is a best of five from there on out. It's the best of seven Phillies won games one the Braves won game two and a great comeback win that they didn't deserve to win quite frankly There the Braves are lucky. They didn't get swept But then the Phillies came back and won the next two games game three in particular was just a monumental spanking from the Phillies. They won 10 to 2 and It was just the Phillies series from the get go. The one game the Braves won, they were getting pummeled for most of it. Had one good inning that got them out of a hole, and aside from that one inning, they had pretty much no signs of life throughout the entire series. But going into this, like I said, the Braves won a hundred and four wins, which is almost I think fourteen more than the Phillies had. They set multiple records for the MLB and their franchise this season they matched a franchise uh, standard with four players having a hundred or more RBIs they set an MLB record for highest team slugging percentage at 501 Matt Olson had the MLB's uh, highest home run total since he's been in the MLB and he also set the Braves franchise home run record with 54. He set the Braves modern era RBI record with 139. Acuna set the Braves record for stolen bases and became the first Braves MLB player to have a 40 home run, 70 Seals season. Seven Braves players hit 20 or more home runs and five of them hit over 30 this season. And their 307 team home runs broke the previous national league record of 279 and tied the MLB's single season home run record and Spencer Strider set the team strikeout record and led the league in strikeouts Spencer Strider went 0 for 2 in the postseason and of all of those Braves players seven of them that hit 20 or more home runs Only, I believe, one of them had any home runs the entire season, or the entire postseason, that was Austin Riley. Nick Castellanos and Bryce Harper both had individually as many or more home runs than the Braves roster had in the entire series. Acuna went 2-for-14 and batted 143. Albies went 4-for-15. Olsen went 4 for 16, Azunia went 2 for 13, and the only Brave star that showed up was Austin Riley, who went 6 for 17 and hit two home runs. Riley played his tail off in this series, and if I were him, I would be fuming with all of his teammates, because it's not like the Braves were playing just absolute gangbusters pitchers. There's no reason that Acuna, Albies, Olsen, and Azunia should have gone below 300 in this series. The pitcher who got two wins in this series, Ranger Suarez, you know what his regular season record was in ERA? He was four for six in the regular season and his ERA was 4.18. Jeff Hoffman, the one pitcher that the Braves were able to beat was five for two in the regular season, or not the one pitcher, Zach Wheeler was the one pitcher we were able to beat. He was three He was 13-for-6 with a 3.61 ERA in this season. Bryce Elder, who was 12-for-4, got beat by Aaron Nola, who was 12-9. and So it's not like the Braves lost because they were going up against a brick wall that is the Phillies' pitching staff. They choked, plain and simple. People are mad at Snicker for not yanking pitchers earlier, which is a valid criticism. There were points where... The game clearly had gotten away from the Braves, and the momentum was swinging the Phillies way. And he might have been able to prevent that to a certain degree if he yanked the pitchers before he did, just to stop the momentum a little bit. But that doesn't excuse the Braves' offense. So if you're dividing up the blame, Snicker, he probably deserves about 30% of it, I would say, maybe less but the, most, the majority of it is just on the immaturity of the Braves' offense to continue to wilt at big moments. Now, when it comes to immaturity, most of the media has their scopes fixed on Orlando Arcia for trash-talking Bryce Harper after Game 2. So Game 2, the Braves had that amazing inning where they came back and got the lead over the Phillies, after the Phillies have been beating them 4 to nothing the entire game. And game two ended when Bryce Harper got caught not tagging up and he got thrown out after the batter that had just hit popped out. And after that, on their way into the dugout, or once they got in the clubhouse, Arcia was kept yelling, at a boy Harper, and he just kept saying it over and over. Reporters were there and apparently he thought that it was off the record. He should know better than to think the media operates in terms that graciously to reporters. But for whatever it's worth, whatever he was thinking, the story got out, and the Phillies fans were pissed. They were heckling him from the start of Game 3. Harper absolutely blasted a home run and stared him down afterwards. It's one of those things where... When you barely get by in a game, you shouldn't be trash talking. And if you're gonna trash talk, don't trash talk their star player. Like, Don't give them more motivation to come at you than they already have. Bryce Harper, who is the Phillies best player, is already probably kicking himself for not tagging up in the first place. There's no reason to add on to his mental chip on his shoulder by trash talking him. And so in game three, Arcia and Acuna got caught chirping with the fans who were heckling them. They were sticking their tongue out. Acuna, in Game 3, I said earlier the Braves only had one good inning in the postseason. They actually kind of had two. Because Game 3, the Braves did get off to the early lead, and they hit a home run. And After that home run, Acuna gave the little zipper motion to the Phillies fans. And all I've got to say about that is, in a similar vein to if you're going to talk trash, don't do it when you after barely surviving a game. Acuna had absolutely no business talking trash as poorly as he played that entire series. The only person on that team who had any room to be trash-talking Phillies fans was Austin Riley. But they taught trash, and they just look immature for it and they just clearly wilted on the big stage bryce harper who showed that he's a superstar in this league still he showed them how it's done on the big stage he went six of 13 batted 462 hit three home runs and five rbis and nick castellanos went seven for 15 and hit four home runs so the braves entire roster combined only hit three home runs after having a historic 307 in the regular season. So, I mean, it's just a choke job. There's really no other way to frame it. And it just shows you that a lot of the Braves good players are young. They they got the yips. And if I'm one of the Braves managers, I'm sending them to therapy, something like they got some stuff they need to work on on – Performing in high-stakes moments. I don't know what it is about that Braves uniform that seems to act as kryptonite to players in high-stakes moments, but clearly they got... And this is the same team that won a World Series two years ago, so it's not like they can't do it. I don't want to go in too hard on them because they did get it done two years ago, and a lot of those big players have left. Freeman's gone. Dansby's gone. So I don't know how much of it has to do with that but sports is a what have you done for me lately environment and last I've seen out of these players it was them choking the last two post seasons so something's got to be done to address this in the offseason now a lot of people are trying to deflect a lot of the blame from the Braves on the fact that this season and last season the MLB implemented a rule that says The top-seeded teams get a week off before they play in the Divisional Series. And they're saying that the Braves would have played better if they didn't have such a long break between the end of the regular season and their playoff season started. You know, the Phillies, they got to play all of last week, so they were in rhythm. And my only response to that, I mean, so... Before I get into that, I guess I'll also mention that the Orioles, who were the American League 1 seed, they got swept, and the Dodgers, who was the 2 seed in the NL, they also got swept by the Diamondbacks. Padgett Johnson tweeted out after the game, he said, We're all disappointed that our Dodgers didn't hit or pitch well, that's why we lost the series to the Diamondbacks, which is basically like saying, we lost the basketball game because the other team scored more points than us so very astute observation for Magic Johnson. Clayton Kershaw got absolutely dunked on in game one to the point where he didn't even make it out of the first inning and he gave up six runs. They ended up losing 11 to 2 and Freddie Freeman, he might be in LA now but he played like a true brave he went 1 for 10 and Mookie Betts went 0 for 11. Only two players on the Dodgers got more than two hits the entire series, which is just laughable for the second-best team in the NL. So, I mean, at least the Braves didn't have the worst choke job in the postseason, but they weren't far off. So with three out of four of the top one and two seeded teams getting put out in the first round, a lot of people are saying that the break has something to do with it, they Didn't look. Clearly where there's smoke there's fire. I mean, it, a lot of this happened last year too, so there must be something to it, but I just I don't get it. I mean I get that baseball is very much about having rhythm, but it's not like they got taken by surprise, they knew after last season. That some of the top-seeded teams including the Braves didn't do very well after having a week off they knew ahead of time the whole season they knew that if they were a top-seeded team they would get a week off so if you know that you're getting a week off and you know there's a chance that it might negatively impact your performance if you don't adjust based off of that knowledge at the end of the day it's on you I mean, it was only five days, too. So, I mean, I get the rhythm argument, like it's good to stay in your groove, but if you're a great player, then I think you should be able to handle a five-day break. It's not like after the All-Star break, teams just completely go to ruin like they did this last week. I mean, I guess you could say that during the All-Star break, every team gets a week off, so it's not an unfair advantage to others but I just I don't buy it I mean if you know ahead of time that you're getting that week off use your minor league team have scrimmage games if it's so important that they stay in game shape I mean I'm sure they had batting practice and sit uh, I think it was Steve Avery was on Fox Sports Radio and he was saying that batting practice just isn't the same as An in-game batting situation which obviously that's true so and if batting practice doesn't cut it get one of your minor league squads to come up and play like there are so many different ways that you can arrange for it and even if you do take into account the week that's no reason for a historically great team to have all of their best players except for Austin Riley get less than five hits in a four game series like to me it just doesn't excuse that so at the end of the day the Braves choke once again and it kind of got me to look into the Braves historic run of the 1990s and just see it feels as though the word choke gets thrown around with the Braves a lot I wanted to do some investigating and see How many of their losses in the 90s during their historic run can be chalked up to them just genuinely getting beat by a good team? And how much were choke jobs? So, I went through and looked at the Braves' playoff outcomes in every season that they should have been favored to win the World Series. So, in 1991, they lost the World Series to the Twins, and I said that wasn't a choke. They seemed like... A pretty evenly matched squad 92 also not a choke that Blue Jays team was pretty good the 93 NLCS which I referenced earlier that was a complete choke job there was no reason they should have got bounced in the second round after winning 104 games 96 World Series against the Yankees not a choke I mean it's Derek Jeter in his prime, those Yankees teams, they were a dynasty for a reason. But 97 and 98 uh, NLCSs against the Marlins and the Padres, choke jobs, and the 99 World Series. Could they have lost in a competitive game, or in a competitive series for the Yankees? Yes, but to get sweeped and the entire team to only bat 200 for the whole series, that's a choke job. So. One, two, three, four, five out of like eight playoff runs in the 90s ended in chokes. So, I mean, the Braves just, they genuinely have a history of it. And it's something that they need to start taking into account going forward in how they prepare their players for the postseason. I don't know if it's that they go too hard in the regular season and end up being gassed in the postseason kind of like the Warriors in 2016 that shouldn't be the case because I mean if any sport is gonna gas you it shouldn't be baseball but it's just some food for thought at the moment the MLB playoff tree has the Phillies playing the Diamondbacks and the NLCS the Astros playing the Rangers in the ALCS and Vegas has the Astros as the favorites Now, to me, that is just... I know it's been a long time since the Astros cheating scandal, but the fact that they're still in World Series contention just shows that they weren't punished enough for that. It's crazy that that franchise can still be competitive after undergoing such a major scandal, and I get it. Most of those players that were on that team are gone now, so... It's a new team, it's in the past, but it still just bugs me that the Astros are still one of the biggest forces to be reckoned with in the MLB. And for those who aren't keeping track at home, they were the the only one or two seed to survive the first round. So, of course it was the Astros. So Vegas has them as the favorites, and the Phillies, and the Rangers, and the Diamondbacks. I think an Astros-Phillies World Series is most likely. I'd have to agree with Vegas, but the Diamondbacks have been on a roll. They've had a week off too, though, so we'll see how that impacts their play. But, I don't know, it's just a pitiful ending to a great season for the Braves. On to the NBA. Big Vic, Victor Webanyama, has made his preseason debut and players and social media are getting way too excited I think so his takeaway performance is that he scored 23 points went 10 of 15 from the field and one of five from three he had like four assists three blocks something like that and they beat the heat but the amount of hype I've seen on social media coming out of this one or two performances it's just ridiculous I saw one article if you as of this recording if you Google Victor Webanyama the first thing that pops up is how does Victor Webanyama's first two postseason games compare to Kobe LeBron and Zion Williamson like what it's just ridiculous how desperate the media seems to be to create a new superstar Now, I mean, it is impressive to see a 19-year-old come in and do 23 points on that level of efficiency. Don't get me wrong. It's impressive. The fact that he's 7'4", has handles and can shoot, it's just, it's a rare breed. He's a unicorn. There's a reason that's a saying. But I don't think that he's going to go in and be this MVP caliber superstar player like people are happening up to be. Now, I'm more than happy to be convinced that I'm wrong, but people are talking about how he's got face-of-the-league potential, and I just don't... If, he's seven four, and he's as thin as a rail. So, I mean, not to come down too hard on the guy, but... There has never been a player over seven two, who has been a MVP or a face of the league caliber player. It's just never happened before. So, I mean, excuse me for not getting on the hype train so early as far as what his upside is. If he proves me wrong, then I'll be more than happy for him. I hope he does. It'd be interesting to see some player just go absolute 2K mode. But I'll believe it when I see it. And just out of curiosity, I've looked up who the greatest NBA players over 7'2 are. And the reason 7'2 is the threshold for this is just that seven two is like the top end of normal for NBA heights. So anything over that is abnormal, just generally, statistically speaking. And a lot of those players end up having knee problems or ankle problems, just because when your body is that tall, running up and down the court constantly, 82 times a year, and that's just in the regular season, it just it puts a toll on a body that's not meant to take that much of a toll. So the top six players who are over seven two in NBA history are Yao Ming, Rick Smits, Ralph Sampson, Mark Eaton, and Sean Bradley. So none of those players ever played longer than 14 seasons. The ones that did play over four, or make it to that level of longevity were mostly defensive specialists who cherry-picked and just camped out in the post and blocked shots and had basically no impact on the offensive end. And some of them, Ralph Sampson, Yao Ming, etc., were pretty notable for their proneness for injury so history is not on big Vic's side in this and i mean i would love it to see him go off and have a great career but i don't get why people are just so over the moon and buying into the hype when i just feel like history should show them to be more hesitant in hyping them up to be a multiple time mvp or whatever Just because I don't think anybody is going to confuse Yao, Rick Smiths, Ralph Sampson, Mark Eaton, or Sean Bradley as an all-time great player. So hopefully he does become the true unicorn and show that 7-4 players can be top 20, top 30 of all time. But it'll take a lot more to convince me of that than two preseason games that ultimately mean absolutely nothing. I not, I can't say absolutely, but they mean very minimal in the grand scheme of things. It's not like uh, teams are known for trying their hardest in the preseason. In the NBA, teams aren't even known for trying their hardest in the regular season. But he is in a good system. If anybody should be trusted with a massive center with once-in-a-generation potential, it's Greg Popovich. He's shown he can do it with Tim Duncan, so hopefully he can do it again. But I think that they just, they got to work on feeding that kid some steak or something because as skinny as he is, it really helps the era he's playing in because if this were 20 years ago, I don't think he'd make it six seasons. (laughs) If you look at it, he's 19 years old. So, I mean, he's still growing into his body, he's still developing, but if he had to go up against Shaq or Ashid Wallace or guys like that, like it's game over. Like Shaq would score 60 on him. So, the area that he's playing in is going to help him not have as much wear and tear put on his body. It's a lot more finesse, a lot less physicality, so that might help him avoid a lot of injuries. But it still wouldn't hurt if he did put on some muscle. It would make him more dangerous in the post-up game. Because right now, I just see him getting ragdolled by good dominant bigs like Jokic or Embiid. But I guess we'll just have to wait for the season to start to find out. Bouncing back to the MLB, I just realized that I forgot to mention Rob Manfred's response to the criticisms of the... Week off break. So, enough people are criticizing MLB giving the top seeds a week off that the commissioner had to make a response. Uh, The Orioles and the Dodgers managers both said that it was a factor they feel in their poor performance, which sounds like an excuse to me, but besides the fact, Rob Manfred said, I'm sort of of the view you need to give something a chance to work out. I know some of the higher seeded teams didn't win. I think if you think about it, where some of those teams were, there are other explanations in a five day layoff, like choking. But I think we'll reevaluate in the off season like we always do, and think about if we have the right format. So, it sounds like that one week break might be going away, and we'll see if they do take it away. And One and two seeds do a lot better Then I guess that was a major factor in the fall off and not just a minor one Now Moving on to Football I've got to say this is probably the most boring week in college football Washington and Oregon had a pretty good game 36 to 33 win for Washington but They only jumped up two spots in the AP poll. Oregon only dropped one spot. For top 10 teams, this is probably the lowest amount of deviation in the poll since the season has started. The biggest jump was Washington and UNC both going up two. And every other team either stayed the same or only made a one spot up or down. The top floor did didn't move at all. Georgia cakewalk to a win against Vandy. Michigan completely demolished Indiana fifty-two to seven. Ohio State crushed Purdue forty-one to seven. Florida State destroyed Syracuse forty-one to three. So I mean, it was just a series of blowouts. Topped off by Penn State, who's number seven, beating UMass sixty-three to zero. That's they need to look at the giving a mercy rule or something. Alabama scraped by against Arkansas after having a dominant first quarter and absolutely putting their feet off of the gas in the second quarter, and they haven't moved any in the poll in about three weeks. I mean, other than that, USC lost to Notre Dame and dropped 8 spots. The other USC lost to Florida in a pretty close game, but neither of them are in the top 25, so it's completely irrelevant. And looking at the AP website, just to show you how weird people's priorities are right now, their top 5 banners right now on the AP poll page are number one Israel Hamas war number two AP poll top 25 and number three Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey so anybody that wants to say Taylor Swift isn't a superstar I guess is clearly wrong because she is top three news right now in a time of constant warfare and turmoil so Swifties, there you go. Your girl is the cream of the crop no matter what else is going on in the news. (laughs) Jeez, that's that's ridiculous. Uh, Justin Fields in the NFL, he got injured today, which is a big blow to my fantasy team considering I just put him on the trading block. Uh, He got sacked, and I guess he landed on his throwing hand, and he got shaken up a little bit, taken out of the game. Didn't come back in, so hopefully Justin Fields is okay. Speaking of my fantasy team, Patrick Mahomes really let me down this week. He only got 17 fantasy points in their win against the Vikings. Or, my bad, the Broncos. But a win is a win. The Chiefs are 5-1. The Broncos are 1-5. So Kansas City continues their march to the postseason. I think, at the moment, they're not looking like they're going to win the Super Bowl. It's kind of like Georgia. Georgia is playing a lot more dominant than the Chiefs are. Then again, they're not playing that great a competition. But, besides the point, in that, statistically, there is no reason that they should win the Super Bowl or Georgia win the national championship. But, at the same time, I can't see who will beat them. I think Georgia has a lot better shot of three peating than Kansas City has of going back to back just because they haven't felt like a Super Bowl team this season. I mean if you look at Kansas City's games, they lost to the Chiefs, they only beat the Vikings by one touchdown, they only beat the one and five or one and four at the time Broncos by eleven points. They only beat the Jets without Aaron Rodgers by 3 points. It just they uh, the Jaguars they only beat by a touchdown or 8 points, so I guess two scores. But it just they haven't had any dominant wins except for their 41 to 10 win over the Bears. So, I don't know if it's championship hangover or what, but they just don't look like the dominant Kansas City team that you would expect to see coming off a really good Super Bowl performance. Now, their Super Bowl rivals from last year are 5-0. and And they're first in the NFC East. So, there's a shot we could get a Super Bowl rematch. But, at the same time, they haven't been dominant really either. I mean, they beat the Patriots by 5. Their biggest win is 25-11 to against the Buccaneers and they're currently only up a touchdown over once again an Aaron Rodgers with Jets. So, I think the NFL doesn't really have a dominant team right now in the same way that they typically do. Now, luckily for Georgia sports fans they do have the Bulldogs, because if not, they would have absolutely nothing to root for, but Georgia are still heavy favorites for the national championship, deservedly so. They've been clearly the best team in college football. I'm just most looking forward to what happens when Michigan and Ohio State play each other, just because they're 2-3 and right now, and it'll be cool to see them knock each other out of the top four. I mean, maybe one of them stays in, even if they do lose just because of the level of competition. But I don't know. I feel like if you get beat by a top four team, you have to kind of drop out of the top four. But I guess we'll find out in about a month. Ohio State has a big matchup against Penn State, though, Coming up this Saturday. So depending on how that turns out, it could have some big implications. Now I'm expecting Ohio State to win just because there are only uh certain things in life seem to be death, taxes, the Braves choking in the playoffs, and Ohio State making the college football postseason. <sighs> oh well. Poor poor, poor Braves. Uh, In other news, Adam Copeland made his AEW Dynamite debut to Christian Cage dropping the F-bomb. So the artist formerly known as Edge came out and tried to convince Christian to stop being such a despicable heel. And they came out, Christian came out, they hugged, And it looked like Christian was going to be a good guy again, quit being a bad guy. And while they're hugging, Christian picks up his microphone and puts it to his mouth behind Edge's head and tells Edge to go F himself. And I can't believe he got away with saying that on television. I mean, they bleeped it out, but it was pretty clear what was said. I thought that was hilarious. And Christian has just been doing some of the best heel work in his it's probably the best run of his entire career. And it's happening after he had been forced to retire because of injuries. And it's just awesome to see him be able to come out of retirement and go on the run that he's currently on. Now in other big wrestling news, coming to theaters near you December twenty second is A Zac Efron movie of an adaptation of world-class championship wrestling, starring Zac Efron as Kevin Von Erich, uh, some guy named Jeremy White as Kerry Von Erich. Uh, They got the entire just the story of the Von Erich family, the triumph and tragedy of world-class championship wrestling. I think if any wrestling saga is movie worthy it's this one <laughs> seeing zach efron play kevin von Erich is something i never expected to see in my life but i think it fits i i just kind of uh, from an aesthetic standpoint very generous to kevin von Erich, but hey i take it but that looks like it should be a super good movie if anybody wants to check out a good wrestling movie over their christmas holidays uh by a25 studios who is the people that brought you Midsummer, or any other mid-budget movie that was really good over the last five years. They're basically the only movie studio that puts out low-budget good movies these days. It's like every other major movie is cost over like $500 million to make and makes like $2 billion at the box office. But they'll make you a good movie on about a $10 million budget that comes back at like, 75 to 100 million dollars of returns. So. That will be interesting to see. Logan Paul. Beat Dylan. Danis. In a fight. Which was most. uh, Known for all of the stuff. That was happening. Going into it. Between Dylan Danis and Nina Agdahl. Who was Logan Paul's fiance. And it ended up with. Her getting a restraining order against him. But, I don't know. All the celebrity boxing stuff, we've talked about it a bunch. But, it's just the ultimate mix of WWE and boxing. It's definitely more uh, flash than substance. But, they make more money than the actual boxers. So, good for them. The fight ended with Dylan Danis getting disqualified for trying to do a takedown of Logan Paul and ended with Dylan uh, getting beat and Logan Paul calling out Rey Mysterio after the match. So chaos unfolding in the celebrity boxing world, what new is there in the news from that? I mean, that's pretty much par for the course, I think. And other than that, I think that covers this week in sports. The MLB playoffs will be continuing to go on this week. So we'll have to see who ends up coming out on top between the Phillies and the D-backs and the Rangers and the Astros. The first game is actually in two hours. So stay tuned for coverage on that. I'm taking the Astros, but... Who knows how it will turn out and catch us here same time next week, same water cooler time, same water cooler channel for the coverage and we'll see you then.